In the early hours of March 13, 1964, a young 28-year-old woman arrived at her apartment complex in Queens, New York. She had been working as a bar manager, so she was just getting off work, and she got out to walk the 100 feet or so to her apartment building. She did not know that there was a man watching her, also 28, who had seen her at a stoplight and followed her to her house. He approached her with a huge hunting knife and began to stab her. And she screamed, and surrounded by apartment rooms, she screamed and screamed, and no one did anything. Except one, one guy said out of his window, hey, let that girl alone. And so the assailant, named Winston Mosley, he got in his car and drove around the block and about 10 minutes later came and finished Kitty Genovese off. Killed her. Surrounded by people that could have done something. Now, I first heard about that story in Intro to Psychology at Oxford College. It is been commonly taught across America in introductory psychology classes. It's commonly called the Kitty Genovese effect. The willingness of people when seeing someone else in need to do nothing, to not get involved. Now, in the intervening years, uh, some have tried to walk back that story, especially people that were right there in that community, because that doesn't make their community look good. They say that Maybe it wasn't 37 or 38 witnesses that they interviewed. Maybe it was more like 19 or 20. And I say that doesn't make it any better. It doesn't help at all if it were 19 or 37. Still, that's a lot of folks unwilling to come to the aid of someone else that's hurting. Winston Mosley was sentenced first to death and then it was later changed to life and imprisonment. He was the assailant. He was quoted as saying, I came back because I knew nobody would do anything. He died last year, 2016, after 52 years in jail for his crime. He was convicted of rape and assault and murder. There are plenty of laws for people that do something wrong. But how do you punish someone for not doing right? No one can force you to jump into a raging river to rescue a drowning child. No law can compel you to meet your new neighbor who doesn't speak English. No one can require you to visit the sick or comfort the grieving or give food to the hungry or write a letter to a prisoner or no one can require you to share Christ with a coworker. Laws are good and necessary, but they cannot change the human heart. If we say, I don't want to get involved, no law can make us act any differently. Uh, 2001, I remember listening to George W. Bush give his inauguration speech. After being sworn in, he discussed the ideals that had made America a great nation. When he was talking about compassion for the poor, he said that some needs and hurts are so deep that they will only respond to a mentor's touch or a pastor's prayer. And then he said this, 
Many in our country do not know the pain of poverty, but we can listen to those who do. And I pledge our nation to a goal. When we see the wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, we will not pass to the other side. In this series, we're talking about Jesus talking to the common problems in life. And today he speaks to a common problem which is illustrated by that modern day parable of the Kitty Genovese story. He speaks to us and it's uncomfortable. He speaks to us who believe because he speaks to the problem of religious hypocrisy. That is saying one thing and doing another. Talking about faith and not showing it. Now I've wrestled with this this week and I want to encourage you to wrestle with it. Uh, God's word is not here to condemn us, but I believe it is here to be listened to and if necessary to convict us. Then today we're going to look at Luke chapter 10 verses 25 to 37. <laughs> I studied this all through the week and then wrote down Matthew 10 25 to 37 that's why in your bulletin if you're looking at the outline it says Matthew but scratch that out and write Luke because if you're looking at Matthew 10 25 to 37 you're going to be lost the whole time I'm talking in this story we see Jesus speaking to this problem so we want to look at this together <clears throat> first I see the question this is Luke 10 25 to 29 on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Some translations say a lawyer, but lawyers then didn't do what they do now. This one was specifically trained in the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, backwards and forwards. And, and so he then helped with any kind of decisions of the, the Jewish faith. That's what it's talking about. And he came along, no, maybe he was even asked by the Pharisees to go and, and trip Jesus up. They knew he was intelligent. They knew he knew the law backwards, the Bible backwards and forwards. So he stands up to test Jesus. What he doesn't understand is he's a, the tester is about to be tested. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question that every major religion attempts to address. It's a question that is in our innermost core. What is our purpose in life? What is life and death like? And what happens to us when we die? That's what he's asking. What must be done to inherit eternal life? What Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, <laughs> it's great. And you might try this to answer a question with a question. He turns the tables. And this expert in the law answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting scripture. He's talking about Deuteronomy 6, 5. And he's right. Later, Jesus, you might know, said the same thing. He could sum up all the law and the prophets in two commands. To love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. In other words, he says, you know what is right. Do this and you will live. He doesn't stop with, you've got the right answer. You know in your head what to do. He says, do this and you will live. In other words, 
make your words and your actions line up. And the lawyer starts scrambling. I can imagine if I'm there, he's, he gets that look like, oh, what do I do now? Because I was testing him, but now he's, he's put me on the spot. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I think he was saying beneath the surface, and who is my Jewish neighbor? See, our human nature is this. We love to love within our circles. We, we love to, to quantify, to categorize the people that we will love. And it's usually we want to love people just like us, that look like us, that talk like us, that have the same preferences as we do. But I say this to you, God wants us to love every human being. He wants us to love the atheist. He wants us to love someone who practices an alternative lifestyle. You see, this is what the story, and many think this was not just um, something that happened, this encounter with the lawyer, but when Jesus responds, he doesn't respond with more theology, more doctrine. He responds with a story, a parable. Now, it very well could be based on something that really happened, but verses 30 to 35 tell us Jesus' response. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that's geographically correct. Uh, in Israel, Jerusalem is 17 miles from Jericho, but Jerusalem is up in the mountains. And Jericho is down a steep, winding road, drops 3,000 feet in elevation, down to the arid plains beside the Jordan River. I've seen both of these places. And by the way, uh, you need to know we're gauging interest for a Holy Land trip uh, in May of 2019. Uh, you, we were going to have a series of informational meetings. If you're interested in at least finding out about it, does it commit you? Uh, but you can sign up back at the Connection Center and we'll, we'll make sure you know about these, these informational meetings. And once you've seen it, you really see it. And I saw this. Jerusalem to Jericho is a, this big drop. And this road was so desolate, and it's still pretty desolate. This road was so desolate, plenty of hiding places along it, that oftentimes people with ne nefarious intentions just like Winston Mosley with Kitty Genovese they will lie in wait and people would they would attack folks coming along and they would rob them and that's what happens here this man going from Jerusalem to Jericho now I think he probably was a Jewish man going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and and maybe that expert in law thought as he's telling this story well well that's terrible I would I, I would try to get justice for I've tried to help this man well, they, they stripped him of his clothes beat him and went away leaving him half dead a priest which you might read in our contemporary times a preacher an evangelical preacher happened to be going down the same road and maybe he was coming from a church service going to his home in Jericho or going to visit somewhere in Jericho and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side so to a Levite a Levite would be more comparable to a, a lay leader, an elder or deacon, or maybe a support staff member in a church. When he came to the place and saw him, he's passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, 
And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put a man, the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you might have. I am sure the priest and the Levite had good reasons. At least they had excuses. Uh, it's very easy to come up with excuses, but excuses when you think about it are really just the skin of a reason stuffed inside of a lie. The skin of reason stuffed with a lie. Here's some seemingly legitimate excuses that the priest and the Levite might have offered for passing by on the other side. One, I'm too busy to stop. Two, I'm late already. Three, I don't know this man. Four, it may be a trap of some kind. Five, I'm not a doctor. Six, he's probably already dead. If he were already dead, then the Jewish law said that in Leviticus 21, 1 through 3, that it, you couldn't touch anybody that was dead because that would make you ceremonially unclean. Two problems with that. One, the Samaritan sees the man and he responds. I think this man uh, had signs of life still. I think uh, perhaps he was groaning, perhaps he was moving, but there, that, that negates that reasoning. The second problem is this, and Jesus came to address this problem, that the spirit of the law, the, the letter of the law was not intended to stop us from ministering to, to seeing to the physical, spiritual, emotional needs of others. So, that may be someone's excuse. That may be someone's seeming reason, but it really is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Maybe someone else would say, someone else will come along and help him better than I can. Or, or maybe they might say, I've been serving God all week and I'm tired. How about I've tried to help before and it blew up in my face. In our time, you might say, there could be a court case and I don't want to get involved. Or get sued. Or you might say, the family is expecting me. I can't be late. You might say, I've got a prayer meeting tonight. You might say, I've, I've been wearing, uh, they might have said, I've been wearing temple garments. I can't get them dirty. They may have said, I don't have enough money to help him. Maybe they said, I'm too busy worshiping God. Maybe they said, when I get to Jericho, I'll call 911 and have them send help. Nevertheless, they got to the place where another human being was in desperate need and they walked by to the other side. Maybe the priest walked on quoting, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want to himself. And maybe the Levite walked on and perhaps he was singing our God is an awesome God to pass the time. I have no doubt that these men would have said they loved God but did they show it? Did you notice what it said? And the audience listening, these Jewish hearers, they would have been shocked when Jesus says the third man was a Samaritan. Why? Because as I talked about last week, if you were here, uh, the, or you can watch it in retrospect on Facebook, uh, or get a CD, a DVD from us, uh, I talked about the enmity between the Jews and Samaritans. They, they hated each other, and they would have been shocked to hear Jesus say, a Samaritan sees the man and stops. 
But even more, it says he had pity on him. In Greek, you need to understand that word means he was, he was affected in the deepest part of his body. He was greatly moved. He had compassion, some translation says. You know what trans, uh, compassion is? It's your hurt in my heart. Compassion is having emotion about someone's suffering, but following it with motion. And that's what happens here. He sees and he responds. How does he respond? Pouring oil and wine on wounds, that was their way of doing first aid. It provided antiseptic qualities, binding up the wounds. And notice he put him on his donkey, which means he walked the rest of the way while this hurt man rode upon his transportation. He takes him to an inn, he cares for him. Then he gives the, the innkeeper two denarii, which is a day's wage each. So he had to work two days to pay for this man's care for his lodging. All of that in response, all of that because he saw another person, probably Jewish, hurting. And he didn't let his prejudice, he didn't let his judgmentalism stop him from acting. The application Jesus gives us in verses 36 and 37, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one, he can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do, not go and say, not go and proclaim, go and do likewise. You see, the question as I read this story that maybe all of us need to ask ourselves is not, who is my neighbor? When we do that, we start quantifying. We start bringing our way of deciding who's worthy and who's not into play. Maybe the question should be not, who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? You see, what that does is puts all of us on the road to Jericho. What that does is put all of us in the place of having to see everyone for who they are. They are human beings created in God's image. Even folks that don't think or act or speak or do like we do, we need to see that we're responsible for what kind of neighbor we are to them. It's been about 20 years ago that a campaign was started and I talked about it in my different ministries and it was a great campaign. It was geared to boys and girls who were coming of age, uh, telling them that true love waits, telling them that it, the Bible says for our own best interest that, that you should wait to have sexual activity until you're married, you should hold off. True love waits. But maybe for our purposes today, this might move you, this might speak to you. I think we should say and understand that in reality, when we're talking about the needs of someone else, we need to understand that true love doesn't wait. True love doesn't wait. It acts. We feel somebody else's hurt in our heart. We have emotion, 
and we follow it up with motion. Here are two questions for you I wanted you to wrestle with this week. And I want to tell you, I wrestled with these because I've been living with this all week. And it made a difference for me. And I sure hope it continues to make a difference with me. The first question is this, how will you walk the Jericho Road? The reality is we're all on the Jericho Road. If we ask ourselves, whose neighbor am I? We need to understand that every day as we go about our lives, we're on the Jericho Road. We, we see if our eyes are open. We see people around us who are hurting physically. We see people who have physical needs. We see people who are hurting spiritually and emotionally. So this week, I asked people, how are you? And you know what? I stopped and listened. <laughs> how are you is like verbal wallpaper, isn't it? How often we do that? Hey, how are you? I'm fine, good, you know. All, all that is stuff we really just say. We, we, we're not even actually listening. And so, as I went about my life this week, I asked, how are you? And, and if I read people as struggling or uh, they said I'm struggling, then I'd stop. You, those of you know, who know me pretty well know I'm always in a hurry. I, I, I'm impatient. I always have a list of yay long of things to do. But I really have tried to, to put the list in a secondary place this week and, and actually focus on the people around me. I stopped. Someone was broke down on one of my trips this week, and, and I stopped when normally I just go by. Thankfully, nothing was major wrong. They said they were good, and, and I moved on. But, but I tried to see them as Jesus would. I, I tried to see and act and not just say, oh, that's too bad. The second question is this. And I know this is not easy to hear, but you need to hear it. How alive is your faith? How alive is your faith? If you were ill and taken to an emergency room, what's the first thing they would do? They would assess you, and then they would take your vital signs. They would check your blood pressure. They'd check your pulse. They'd uh, see how you were breathing, your respirations. I would say the degree to which we not just talk about our faith, but we put it into action is our spiritual vital signs. James talks about it this way in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now the Bible teaches us that there is saving faith. We can't save ourselves, but only through faith in Christ can we be saved. But there also is living faith. Those who are saved by Christ, those who have saving faith, have to respond and have to live out that faith and that testimony with living faith. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds did you hear those who talk about faith but don't show it their faith is dead you believe there's one God good even the demons believe that and shudder so 
So, how will you walk the Jericho Road? How alive is your faith? One final application I think of is, is that since Eden, all of us have been walking away from Jerusalem on the road to Jericho ourselves. As we live, life has a way of beating us down. The tempter, the deceiver comes and leads us astray. Our own poor decisions leave us broken down, beaten, and wounded. And Jesus came down that road and, and saw us, and he stopped, and he bound up our wounds, and he carries us, he will carry us to eternal destiny with him. Not because we were worthy, but because of his love, because of his sacrifice. As we believe in faith, saving faith, he will save us. But he doesn't save us just for us to be fat and happy. He saves us so that we can be productive and fruitful and caring for others. That's why he tells this story. The, as you live, you have so many opportunities to share your life with others, to help those who are hurting, to bring up those in need. And it's satisfying, not just to them, but to us as well. Jesus was the original Good Samaritan. And so he wants us to join him. Fathers, I think about these things as I've talked to you this week, uh, and I thank you for opening my eyes to see that it's very easy to talk a good faith, a good game, a lot harder to live it. So easy to make excuses, but really, that's what they are. I pray this week that you've touched us, you've convicted us, that our walk on the road to Jericho might be different this week. I pray that our vital signs might improve, that spiritually we might come alive by helping others who struggle. I thank you, Father, and I, I praise you and ask you, I thank you for your patience, I ask you to keep being patient with me and with my friends here, but, but move us, stimulate us to action. I pray it in Jesus' name.